This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Joseph Marshall. Joseph Marshall is a teacher, historian, writer, storyteller, and a Lakota craftsman. He was born on the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota and raised in a traditional native household by his maternal grandparents. Now as a full-time writer, he has published nine nonfiction works, three novels, a collection of short stories and essays, and has written several screenplays. Through Sounds True, he has released the audio learning programs Keep Going, Quiet Thunder, and a book that includes a CD of stories called Walking with Grandfather, The Wisdom of Lakota Elders. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Joseph and I spoke about the wisdom he received from his Lakota elders and how it applies to our modern lifestyle. We also talked about the sense of guilt and shame that many Euro-Americans, which is the way that Joseph refers to non-Native Americans, feel when considering the tragedies of our early American history. We also talked about many of the central teachings of the Lakota people. And finally, a story about the power of awareness and quote-unquote looking back. Here's my very illuminating conversation with Joseph Marshall. Joseph, one of the themes of your work is on the art of perseverance and how to work with difficult times, challenges. And as a Lakota Sioux elder, obviously I think this is something you know a lot about from the history of the Lakota and all of the difficulties that have been experienced by your people. And to begin with, I'm wondering if you could tell us about what are the key ideas about how to work with difficulty when it emerges in our life. Well, first of all, I think, uh, you know, difficulty is is not exclusive to to any one group. And it, it, all of us uh, experience it in one way or another, to one level or another, uh, sometimes every day. And then, of course, we all know that, you know, some... Some difficulties are harder or worse, um, uh, and can can really have a drain on us. But I think that, uh, uh, first of all, we have to understand. I think that that life is comes with difficulties. It, there are problems, there are obstacles, there are situations for us to contend with day in and day out. And once we have, once we understand that reality, uh, that's that's the most important aspect of dealing with difficulty and and persevering and that's one of the things that uh 
my grandparents, both both sets of grandparents, always try to teach all of their grandchildren is that uh, life is good, but life is not always easy, and it's it's the not easy times, those times of difficulty that that really um, we have to face uh, instead of avoiding them, and and those are two very simple realities that that. They try to teach uh, early on, even even when we were little children. Every everything that, uh, uh, like crossing a creek, uh, could be an obstacle for, you know, it isn't a problem for somebody who's six feet and has a long stride. But crossing a small creek could be a problem for somebody who's not quite four feet tall. So you know, it was an opportunity for them to teach us how to deal with this particular difficulty, and in a broader sense, that difficulty is a part of life. So once we realize that difficulty is, is part of life, then that's that's the first step. It's interesting. You're making an observation that somehow in our contemporary society, it's almost this idea, maybe a commercial idea, that difficulty shouldn't happen, that there might be some way we can avoid it if we you know, buy the right soap or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or take the right pill, or read the right book, or, or have the right kind of friends, then then we won't have uh, difficulties. But it's 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 interesting. I, I find it interesting, and maybe you do too. Uh, sometimes when I watch TV, I see commercials for certain kinds of uh, medication. And along with what the medication can do beneficially, there's a whole list, a long recital of the side effects. And that's really what life is. I mean, there's certainly good things in life, uh, good events, good occurrences, things happen to us that are good and positive, and we have relatives and friends who are have a positive impact on us. But then um, also there are situations and people who, who whose impact, whose attitudes, whose ways uh, are not as positive. And, and it's, just, it's just part of life. And, and no soap, no pill, no, no drink, no potion is going to do away with that. And I think that's what... Uh, I mean, we'll, it would be good if we could have those things, but we don't. And and if we accept that reality, then, then it's better for us. Okay, so that's the first step in working with difficulty is just to recognize that it comes with the package of being an alive human being. Difficulties happen. But I know there's quite a bit more in your work looking at issues like resilience and how we can bounce back when hard things happen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, another thing that uh, I learned early on from basically from grandparents and from people who who were part of my upbringing is that that each of us, uh, whether we are young or old, uh, uh, have a certain amount of strength to begin with. We, we, we come with that. I mean, that's part of the package when we're born. We have the ability to be strong. And in order to sort of flip that switch or turn on that strength, we need not to avoid bad things. We need to face up to them. Whether we get knocked down or not is not, not really the issue. It's that we face them, and we probably will get knocked down or disappointed or or some some adverse thing will, will happen as a consequence of facing something, but we still need to face it. And, and that's, you know, we face it with whatever strength we have. And I learned early on that we probably... That, that I was anyway, in my case, stronger than I thought I was, and then that I could face up to something 
and deal with it. And, and even if it knocked me down again, I would face up to it again. And that's the strength that we have, you know. And perseverance is is simply not to give up, and that's the first lesson: is not to give up. I'm wondering, Joseph, if you would be willing to share with me something from your own life, something that happened that you found very challenging, and how you were able to draw on Lakota wisdom as a way to keep going. Well, I think the first. Um, as a child, the first really difficult thing that I had to face, um, and, and, there, and there were disappointments as a child, but, but the, the, is going to school. Uh, I lived with my uh, maternal grandparents until I was eight and, ha- and, and, and really didn't know what school was about, what formal education in the Western sense was all about. There, uh, there was an uncle of mine who I knew was in school, I mean, but I didn't know what that meant exactly, precisely. And no one ever took the time to explain to me what school meant. I knew he was going to school. He would go to a dormitory, come home on weekends, and then he went away to the university, which was more school. But when I was eight, um, my uncle and my grandparents took me from the Rosebud Reservation to the Pine Ridge Reservation to my paternal grandparents, and, and I had to stay with them and then uh, go to school. And, and it happened so suddenly, I, it was totally unexpected. We made this trip of 140 miles to my other grandparents, and it wasn't that I didn't love them or respect them. Uh, it was that I suddenly had to be uprooted and placed in a different situation. That was the shock. And then added to that was I was there because I needed to go to school, and in a few days... Uh, my grandfather, my grandfather Marshall, took me to the Kyle boarding and day school, not far from where they live, just a few miles. And it all came at a rush. I mean, there were different people. There were crowds of people. There were hundreds of kids. There were teachers. There were adults that that, uh, I obviously didn't know. There was a language I was not entirely familiar with. So it was I just didn't know what to do. I was so I was confused, and, and amid that confusion was was a little bit of anger because I didn't understand what was going on. But you know, it, it, it all I could do was get through whatever that first day was. And part of that first day, I remember very vid- vividly, was sitting outside of what what was the principal's office for a long time. And this man, very tall man, white white man, came out in a suit, and he took me to a classroom. And everybody tried to explain to me as best they could because I was not fluent in, in, in English, fluent in English, what was happening, and then encountering a whole classroom of, of uh, kids. And they were native kids; they were Lakota kids. But nonetheless, all all nobody I knew nobody, and there was nobody I could you know relate to. Um, so that was the first really uh, emotional shock that I encountered is is experiencing what school was all about, and. And I knew it was expected of me, and and I just had to simply get through each moment, and each each day the best I could. I didn't at first. I mean, it was difficult. Uh, I ran away from the school grounds several times, and and people had to come after me to bring me back to the school. But eventually, I decided that probably the only way to deal with it and get the adults off my back was to to endure what was going on. Um, even though I didn't like the food, I didn't like the routine, 
I didn't like where I was. I simply had to endure it. And that was my first lesson in perseverance. And did your grandparents advise you in any way or teach you in any way how to work with that situation? They did. I mean, they, you know, they once once they realized, especially my grandfather, the amount of difficulty I was having in school, he finally sat down with me and he said, grandson, uh, you can't be running away from, from, you know, school because you don't want to learn to run away from situations that are that are tough. And he explained this to me because he spoke Lakota as well. All my grandparents did. And he took the time to explain to me then what school was about and that it was necessary. Whether we liked it or not, it was necessary. something that we had to do. And that he said, he told me that he knew that I could do it. And once once he spoke and explained those things to me and spoke to me very gently uh, and took the time to to outline what was expected of me, then, then it was easier to contend with. It was not easy overall, but it was easier to, to face. Now, you were raised, Joseph, by your maternal grandparents. And Correct. I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about what that situation was like. Just give us a kind of visual of what your early childhood was like. Oh, sure. Um, I was told I, uh, I was given to them or taken to them when I was just a few months old um, for several reasons. Uh, my parents were working. My father had several jobs going from one ranch to another to break horses for ranchers. And so it was not a, a lifestyle uh, in which an infant was, you know, was safe or comfortable. So I was given to my maternal grandparents, and and um, we lived very various places that I can remember some more concretely than others. But it was on a northern part of the Roseburg Reservation, and near a little town called White River, South Dakota, and in that general area. And the, one of the communities on a reservation was called Horse Creek, and that's where. That was our community. Another one was called Swift Bear, and we we were in that community as well. Um, but it was it was uh, it was in most ways it was very carefree for me. Uh, I was allowed to play. I was encouraged to play, uh, to wander about by myself, to explore my my territory. I had uh, there was about 150 square miles of land and meadows and uh, a river and creeks and hills that. That I and a couple dogs could could go and and just explore and see what was out there. It was it was their way of encouraging me encouraging me to understand my environment and to deal with whatever was out there, be it good or bad, whether it was dangerous rattlesnakes or or rabbits or coyotes or a fast moving creek or whatever. I had to learn to deal with those, and and that was my childhood. I mean, it, it was carefree in many respects and. And and very adventurous. I mean, there were there was they didn't forbid me to go to somewhere to some place or do something, and unless it was very very dangerous, then they then they would tell me you can't go there because. And generally speaking, I I, I respected that because I respected my grandparents. But it was uh, it was always out in the open. Even in the wintertime, we were outside doing things out out in the environment, uh, working or playing. And I uh, had a couple dogs and had access to horses. And I was put on the back of a riding horse when I was four or five years old. And 
I had to learn to keep my balance and stay on, and, and that was the way it was, it was done for a long time. So that was that was the way I was at my end of the experience. But the, also part of it was because my grandparents were, when I came to them, um, they were in their 50s and 60s. Uh, actually, my grandmother was 47, and my grandfather was 60-some. He was 14 years older than my grandmother. There were also people of their age, their generation, our relatives and friends who who came who came to visit. We visited them. Uh, there were a lot of social occasions. There were church on Sundays, for example, where everybody got together. And when those things happened, then the older people always drew the the children to them to talk to them or to visit about things and to tell stories. So that was. That was the foundation of, that is the foundation of who I am, that contact with with those old people and how they were as people, the kind of things they had to say, not just to me, but all the other children that were there and the kind of lessons they taught with their, their stories. So that's that was my childhood. I mean, it was, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was over much too quickly. Mm. Now, Joseph, here you are, you're in your 60s, and you live basically what one could say would be a Western lifestyle currently in terms of your home and cars and everything. How much do you think of your early experience and the wisdom that you learned from your grandparents and the people of their age? How much of that wisdom really applies in our modern world? What does and what doesn't? Um, as far as I'm concerned, everything applies uh, because life is life. Uh, the only difference differences between now and then is the amount of technology and the amount of people I uh, have contact with. And, and everything else is basically the same. We still have to worry about making a living. We still have to worry about taking care of our families. We still have to worry about what's going on in the world that directly affect us. And those were some of the issues that that they had to contend with uh, when they were their you know, primary caregivers in my life as as a child. And those kind of issues, while they may be slightly different today, are basically the same. So the things that they taught me about understanding the environment around me, about the kind of people that are out there in the world, about the kind of person that I should be. Uh, as a Lakota and as a man, all of those lessons are applicable today because, as everyone knows, what, what we learn in those first formative years, uh, up to maybe the age of 10, is how we, how we contend with life uh, hereafter, thereafter. And, and, and everything that they had to teach is just as viable today as they were then. Now, there's a couple of questions, Joseph, that I'd like to ask you that are things that I've always wanted to ask a true Native American elder. I hope it's okay. They're a little risky, but here we go. What I notice sometimes is that I feel a personal sense of guilt sometimes when I am with or when I speak to someone who is of Native American heritage, guilt for what the Euro-Americans did in coming over to this country a couple hundred years ago. And I'm curious what you would say to that, to someone like me or maybe other people who have a sense of 
maybe it's guilt or shame or just for what our collective group of Euro-Americans did, the kind of tragedies they created? Well, that's, it's an interesting question and a statement. And, and I, yes, I have encountered that. People have asked me that. Uh, they, and, they, and they declare, well, I do feel guilty. I mean, I get emails a lot. I get letters uh, from people who say that very thing, just as you just did, that there is a sense of guilt for how history turned out, how the interaction between our different groups of people turned out. And first of all, there's no denying history. I mean, there is a reality to history that we all should be aware of um, for two reasons. Not, not so much to feel guilty, but just to have an awareness of it because the premise, uh, the axiom that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it is very, very true. Uh, on our part, we don't want those things to happen to anyone, and we certainly don't have, want those things to happen to us. So along with feelings of guilt, right behind it, linked with it inextricably, should be a sense of realistic awareness of how history really came down and why some of the things happened the way they did, why they happened at all, and what the attitudes were that were behind those actions. Uh, someone asked me, uh, why do you want us to feel guilty? I never ever said anywhere, I never ever wrote anywhere that I want non-needing people to be guilty. What I would rather have is awareness. Awareness of that history so that we learn from it, so that we do not treat each other and other people the same way that that uh, your Americans treated Native people and and uh, and and wolves as well. If you want to study what happened to Native people, then study what happened to wolves. If you want to know what happened to na to wolves, then study what happened to Native people. It was it was that sense of entitlement and sense of superiority that drove all of that. And those are the kind of things that perhaps as Americans overall with which we are facing the world at large with that sense of superiority, superiority entitlement. And it, it's, and I think some of us have not learned from our own histories. And that's, you know, in place of that guilt, that's what I would rather have, uh, is awareness. Uh, history is a difficult thing, and it's a difficult thing to remember and know exactly what happened. It's a difficult thing to own up to, and for Native people like me, it's often a difficult thing to talk about because sometimes it's not easy to keep the anger at bay and the bitterness at bay. Uh, although I try, I try to present history in a way that is uh, a learning tool, not a bloody stump to hit somebody over the head with, but a learning tool. And when, when one uses it as a learning tool, then guilt is not the, the consequence awareness should be and that's really what i would want is is that awareness so we don't do the same stupid awful things again in that spirit joseph i know that our conversation here is not going to go on for days and weeks but i'm curious what aspects of the history do you think are important to really emphasize that might not be in people's awareness um what aspects of it? Um, 
I, I think I think all of us uh, function or operate or live from from what our values are and what our attitudes are, and I think your Americans came to this continent with a, that sense of superiority, that sense that they were a better people, a more more moral people, a more enlightened people. Um, and I think there was one pope, and I can't remember exactly which pope it was, uh, who issued an edict that it was it was acceptable to uh, kill native people because they did not have souls like white people did, like Christian people did. So when you have those kinds of attitudes, certainly you're going to act from the foundation of those attitudes. Um, and I think that was... You know, certainly the guns and the liquor and the technology that your Americans had did their share of damage, but without the attitudes driving them, uh, they probably would not have had the kind of damage that guns caused would probably would not have happened. So it's attitudes and, and, and how they drive people to do what they do, that the whole thing of the whole attitude of manifest destiny, that we are entitled, we are supposed to come here and do this. It was our right. It is our right. And if you look around and if you listen to some of the things that are happening today uh, in politics and in, in, in corporate America, there is still that attitude of manifest destiny. And that's dangerous because that causes you to uh, override the basic values of fairness and compassion and balance and all those other things that should be driving us instead. So it's attitude, I think, that was the root cause of a lot of difficult things. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that in yourself you do your best to keep anger and bitterness at bay, especially when seeing not only what's happened in history, but as you mentioned, what we currently see happening in our world in terms of people still holding those kinds of attitudes. How do you keep anger and bitterness at bay? How do you personally do that? Well, it's uh, it's it's finding a certain amount of, of, of balance um, and understanding that anger is a destructive force. It's a destructive emotion. Uh, maybe there is such a thing as righteous anger. Sometimes it is necessary for anger to to be to to cause us to be courageous when something goes wrong, but anger in and of itself, when it is driven by ignorance, is a very destructive force. So we we need to learn, at least I've, I'm still trying to learn, that that anger is not the best way to teach a, a lesson, teach a positive lesson. Uh, but, but having said that, it, it, the anger is still there uh, when when you consider when one considers the kinds of stories that emerge from history i remember my grandfather uh because i asked him when i was uh probably 14 or 15 and in school we were studying uh western american history and there was a brief mention of what had happened at wounded knee in 1890 and my grandfather was born in 1888 and so he was only two when that happened, but of course his parents were alive, and and so I asked him what he knew what he knew about that event, and he told me what what his parents and other people had told him in the years after that had happened. Um, 
and 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 what their reaction was to it, which was basically an an enormous amount of uh, shock and sadness that this sort of a thing would happen. Uh, and so he told me the story of what he knew about Wounded Knee, and and then he ended it by singing uh, an honoring song for all the people who died there. And I, I've you know I, I've not seen I, maybe I saw my grandfather cry maybe two or three times in my entire lifetime. And that was one of those moments he cried when he talked about what happened at Wounded Knee and I saw how it affected him. And when you see how that kind of an event affects people, then then you feel a certain amount of pity and empathy, certainly, but then you become angry because you're one of those people that it happened to you. It was your kind of people that suffered you know what happened at Wounded Knee, so it's not easy to keep the ang- anger at bay. But still, one we have to realize that anger is not a constructive force, and so that's what I remember day in and day out. Uh, that it's best to teach with 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 positive emotion rather than it is with with negative emotion, and, and anger is one of those things. So, so you know, balance is important. You know, so I I, I keep it I keep it in its own compartment, uh, aside from from everything else I do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. One of the other questions that I've wanted to ask is how you feel about non-Native Americans adopting and then adapting certain Native ceremonies like the sweat lodge ceremony or the vision quest experience and leading their own vision quest groups and sweat lodges. And what's your view of all that? Um it's not acceptable to me uh pure and simple um i don't I, I don't think it's our place to deny somebody who some anyone who wants to come and participate uh with us in our ceremonies um, but there there was there was uh, an instance where there are several instances but one comes to mind when you know, I was living in Wyoming and there was an advertisement in a local paper that said uh, Lakota sweat ceremonies seven o'clock on Wednesdays. Call such and such, and there was a name and a phone number. <clears throat> so uh, when I called the number, there was an answering. Uh, it was a there was, an, there was a message on the phone, and, and so I left a message. I told them who I was, I gave them my name, and that I was a Lakota, and I was interested in what the sweat ceremony was all about. And I never got a reply back at all, although I called several times. And as it turned out, I found out that the person who was doing the advertising was a um, a local 
registered nurse who worked at the hospital, a male nurse, and he had gone to one or two uh, Lakota sweat ceremonies just as a participant. And from that, he assumed that he had the the right and the wherewithal to conduct his own ceremonies. So I take issue with that kind of approach. It's up to pretty much up to each individual medicine man who he accepts into a ceremony and who he allows to be part of it. And if a medicine man says you can come and participate, that is not license to conduct your own sweat lodge ceremonies. No more than that I would get up in front of a Catholic mass and say, I'm conducting this mass and I'm going to preach the sermon today. It doesn't work that way, and it should not work that way. So I, I, it's not acceptable for me to for people to assume that they have the wherewithal, the authority, and the right to to uh, conduct Lakota ceremonies. People who are not who are non Lakota, for them to come and participate and learn, that's that's okay. That's I mean that's the way we create awareness. But to come in and take over, as it were. And it, it, you know, it, it for me it diminishes the whole thing, and, and to me that's not acceptable at all. Now, just to push on this a little bit, if that's okay, Joseph, just a little, which is obviously someone advertising a sweat lodge as a Lakota sweat lodge is you know a pure and simple appropriation of something that doesn't belong to them. But I'm curious, and I'm curious because I know a lot of people who are good, sincere people who have taken the sweat lodge experience itself and just said, come participate in a weekend of sweat lodge ceremony where they're taking that essential piece of building a structure and having a fire and sweating and praying. Right. How do you feel about that? And just honestly, I'd love well, to know. You know, that, that's okay. I mean, there's, it, and I've seen people, and I've been with people who, one of my nephews is a medicine man, and he, he invites people to come and and there are pe- all kinds of people who do come, uh, Native people from other tribes, non-Indian people who do come, and they participate. And when they participate in the in the spirit of learning and being part of it, and and uh, then that's that's fine. I mean that's you know because that's the way we we come to an understanding of one another. Um, you know, Native people go and they they are they belong to Christian denominations and they they go to Christian church services um, but unless they become through the process uh, you know pastors and deacons or whatever and that system is available to them in that in that sense um, they don't assume that they have any control and that's that's where that's where the rub is for me but I've, I've been with a lot of people who not need people who will come and will courteously, respectfully, and in the spirit of learning and being a part of something, will participate. And, and that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's good and fine. No, but I'm taking it a step further, not just participating, but then going and setting up their own sweat lodge, not calling it a Lakota sweat lodge, but just here's a sweat lodge experience and leading people through that. They've never been initiated necessarily by Right. any type of traditional elder, but they then right. take it and they just teach it in a, this is a universal practice of the sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? that, that that's, to me, it's, it's at the very least questionable. Uh, and I think the you know, in, in specific instances, we need to know what their motivation is and what they are saying to people. Um, I mean, the case in point is what happened in Arizona and several people 
suffered injury and several people died because this one man did a uh, built a sweat lodge that housed over 40 people inside of one sweat lodge and 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 uh, and, uh, and it was the heat was overwhelming it, a sweat lodge is not to see how hot you can stand it and to, to see how tough you are uh it's it's a cleansing ceremony to for one very simple reason is you you become reborn it's not you know how tough you are and how brave you are and how hot you can stand it and before you give up and that was the sense I got out of the story of what happened in, in Arizona. And when people don't understand the, the real reasons and the full extent of why we do certain ceremonies, then that's where people who come to them are misled. And that's really what I take issue with. People who come to a sweat lodge that is conducted by a non-Lakota or non-Native person uh, who doesn't quite understand it fully uh, the people who come and participate are misled because they think that this person knows everything there is to know, and chances are they don't. So that's that's the thing that I take issue with. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious, of course, your own prayer and ceremonial life is personal, but I'm curious if you'd be willing to share a little and give us a sense of what Lakota ceremonies are important to you in your life now. Um, in, in general, they're, they're all important, uh, but you know we we don't always all have the opportunity to participate in all of them. And um, the one ceremony that I that I like to participate in is the sweat, the, the inipi, which means to be reborn. Um, but every day, um, uh, I start out my day, Tammy, with a uh, several minutes of, of silence before I get to work, before I turn in, on any device in the house, before I make coffee, before I do anything else. I light a, a sprig of sage, and I smudge, I let the smoke rise, and I pray. Uh, for a few minutes, I pray for my relatives, my friends, especially anyone who's having uh, any amount of difficult difficulty or facing something extraordinary, I pray for them specifically, such as a cousin of mine in South Dakota who is now facing uh, stage four liver cancer. So I, I thought about her today. I'm thinking about her all day. And then after I smudge, I sit down and making sure my feet are on the floor, that I'm in contact with the ground or the earth. And I spend a few moments of just nothing but silence where if there's nothing but silence, that's okay. But sometimes there are images and there are thoughts and feelings that come into that silence, and I allow that. And that's how I start my day. And that's my little ceremony, if you will, uh, every day, uh, and it will be every day of my life from now on. Joseph, we started our conversation, and I was speaking with you about what you know about Lakota wisdom in terms of dealing with difficult times and the art of perseverance. I started with that because it's an aspect of your work that I'm quite interested in and that I think is very important. But I'm curious, beyond that theme, what you feel are the central teachings of the Lakota people that we really need in our world today, that you really want to make sure 
people are aware of that here's what the Lakota can offer our troubled world? Oh, interesting question. Um, there's probably, uh, the answer probably requires a lot more wisdom than I have at my beck and call at the moment. But what I understand and perceive about uh, what we Lakota stand for, and there are many things we stand for, but one of the things we do is that we accept the reality of what is. Uh, there is a saying in our, in, in our language, it, it, it's that's the way things are. And if you take that simple phrase and look around, uh, there are some realities that, that exist in our everyday lives, in our immediate environment, but also in, in the larger environment around us. And some of those realities that the Lakota perceived way back when is the sun comes up and it goes down. It comes up in a certain direction and it always goes down in a certain place. And there are other realities as well, uh, that, that there are circles and cycles to life. Uh, the seasons run in a cycle. Uh, the moon is round, that's a circle. The sun is round, that's a circle. And these are the kinds of realities that are part of our existence. We don't deny them. We accept them for what they are because we can't change them. And and the, uh, the biggest, I think, reality is about life itself. It has a beginning and it has an ending. And, and it is a cycle itself. We, we are born, we are infants, and then we are children, and then we are adults, and then we are elders. And that's the cycle of our life. And now I'm at that point where I'm at the beginning of being an elder. And so I'm into that you know, last phase of my life. And that's the way it is. Uh, and, and having heard other people talk about it, especially old people, that this is the way things are, uh, enables me to accept that reality about life and about my life. And the, the one thing that, that I think is probably one of the most important things is how we relate to other forms of life. And, and out of that, we come up, we understand the reality that we, as human beings, are no better or no worse than any other form of life, whether it's a shrub or a bird or a snake or any other form of life. We are equal because all of us are born into this life, we live our lives, we fulfill our purposes, and then we end our lives. And no, no creature, no, no form of life, especially we humans, cannot circumvent that one reality. So that's what makes us all equal. So we don't regard ourselves as having dominion. We don't regard ourselves as being the one species that is, is in charge of all other species. We are no more or no less. And that's the one reality I think that the world needs to understand in relationship to the earth. And, and, and most of our cultures do not accept that. They look at it from a different viewpoint. And I think that has an impact on how we treat, certainly how we treat one another, how we treat other forms of life, and how we treat the earth. And I think if there's one thing that other people can learn from us is that aspect of reality and so we and we accept that reality in a humble way and we we act on that reality from that 
from that knowledge of, of, that we have of it. So and those are just some of the things that, that I think that uh, we Lakota can offer to the world, and that's that's you know that's the way I look at it. Joseph, you're a beautiful storyteller, and I wonder if there's a story that perhaps comes to mind right now that encapsulates a bit of what we've been talking about in some way. Any story, a short story that, that comes to mind that you might be willing to share with us? Well, it, uh, it, it's, it's the story that immediately comes to mind when you, when you mention, when you pose this, this question, is, is one that happened to me. And I've written about it, and I, I talk about it a lot. And it relates to, to how we as human beings look on the past and, and, and what it can offer us uh, in terms of what we can learn from it. Now, when I was a boy, four, five, and six years old, uh, my grandfather and I would go for walks, and, and we would go anywhere and everywhere, any season of the year, whether it was winter, spring, summer, or fall, we would go for walks. And sometimes we had something other than do to do while we were walking, like gathering wood or, or so on and so forth. But we would walk, and and we would walk a long way, sometimes for miles. And then he would had he had this curious little habit of stopping, and then he would turn me around, grab me by my shoulders, and then turn me around, and he would say, "Kakoja, grandson." look back at the way we came. And so I, I would. I would look back at how we had come to this point, either by a river or uh, down a hillside or through this little grove of trees or however we had come, I would look back because my grandfather told me to. And after this had happened several times over a few years, I finally asked him, I said, Grandpa, why are you making me look back? And I suspected he had been waiting for me to ask that question because the answer was right there. He said, because, grandson, one of these times I'm going to send you down this trail by yourself, and if you don't remember the way you came, you will be lost. And to me, that is the greatest lesson I ever learned about history and about the past because the past makes us who we are and makes us what we are. And if we're not aware of how we came to this place and this moment, then then how in the heck are we going to understand where we're going from this point on? And that's, to me, that is the most profound, one of the most profound lessons I ever learned from my childhood. Joseph, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this honest and honorable conversation. You have such humility and directness. I really appreciate it so much. Well, well thank you, Tammy, for this, uh, this great and uh, wonderful opportunity. It was uh, nice to have this uh, conversation. Joseph Marshall is the author of a book that also includes a CD of stories, which sounds true, called Walking with Grandfather. The Wisdom of Lakota Elders. He's also created an audio program on Keep Going, The Art of Perseverance, and a six-session audio learning course called Quiet Thunder, The Wisdom of Crazy Horse. Joseph, again, wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.
Thanks for listening.